Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. It's hard to take over for a broadcast legend, but in 2018, Francis Lamb did just that. The New York Times columnist and cookbook editor took the helm of the splendid table, replacing host Lynn Rosetta Casper after a 21-year run. The Cooking Show, an American public media mainstay, airs on this station Sundays at 7 p.m. Now this New Jersey native, the son of Chinese immigrants, is coming to St. Louis Public Radio for a live taping of The Splendid Table on Thursday, August 15th. He'll share the stage with Tamara Keefe, CEO of Clementine's Creamery, Michael Galena, the chef owner of Vicia, and Chef Ramon Cuffey of Herbie's. Francis Lamb joined us in advance of his visit. Francis, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. We know that many people locally listen to The Splendid Table, but for those who don't catch it on Sunday evenings at 7 on St. Louis Public Radio or listen to the podcast, can you describe <laughs> the show? <laughs> what are you trying to accomplish with it? I really appreciate the plug, first of all. <laughs> um, it was so subtle, wasn't it? <laughs> Sometimes what, what I go really subtle with is when I tell people, like, even if you don't listen to us, download the podcast. It's great. We could use the numbers. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> That's when I'm at my absolute tackiest. Um, what am I trying to accomplish with it? Well, what are we trying to accomplish with it? This is a show that has been around for, as you said, over 20 years. And under Lynn's leadership and direction, it's a show that I loved listening to just as a fan, you know, when well before I ever thought I would be, I mean, let alone in radio, before I ever thought I'd be a cook or a professional cook, which I was, but... Um, I remember listening to it in the kitchen of the house I shared with friends when I was in college, living in Michigan. And, you know, it was a show that I thought did so many things for so many people, right? And what it did for me was it inspired me in the kitchen, inspired me to think about food, inspired me to think about combinations of flavors and textures and ingredients. But as I kept listening, what I realized what happened too was it would go beyond the kitchen so often. Mm -hmm. And Lynn was a terrific cooking teacher. That was her background originally before she even did the show. So she had instruction really, really nailed down and she could really guide people through the process of cooking and inspire them to cook. But her interests were always so wide ranging. And what I realized being a listener to the show was that often we might hear her start a conversation with someone about their cookbook, about their recipes, but really we'd go into, well, tell me about the culture that this cuisine comes from, mm. or tell me about the home you grew up in, or tell me about the research you did about this place that you know you have family ancestry in, or that you had never seen before until you started writing about it, you know, all these things. And I realized that, oh, the way she talked about food was so often much more than about the food itself. And that's kind of where I come in. Because, as I mentioned, I am, a, you know, I am trained in the professional kitchen. I used to cook in restaurants. I went to culinary school. I have a deep, nerdy love of cooking. And I also love to inspire people to cook and to, and to you know, talk to them about flavor combinations and all that. But for me, I didn't come to food media as a writer really with the sole purpose of that. I came to it as a storyteller. Right? And I came to it as someone who was really interested in the world in general. And what I found was the more I could talk to people who are different than me, come from different places than me, had different backgrounds than me, have different interests than me, the more I could see of the world. Hmm. And what I realized was the thing that I could talk to those people about to start a conversation was food. 
or football. I, I have this theory that if you can talk about food and you can talk about football, you can talk to anyone in America. So, <laughs> so if we can't talk about theory, food, actually. I can ask you, well, how do you think the Cardinals are doing? You know, I can do that. Sorry, St. Louis. I, I, That's that actually baseball here, low. but yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, the, well, then they moved and then the Rams. I was going to say how the Rams are doing, but no, the Rams. Yeah, are, don't I, talk about I'm the sorry. Rams here. That, uh, okay, <laughs> you I'm don't want to be very unpopular. <laughs> okay, if I can talk about food in St. Louis, I can maybe talk to people you and go. I'll keep yeah. the football to myself. <laughs> so food is sort of a lens to, to look at culture. And that is what you were doing as a journalist in your New York Times Sunday Magazine column. You were talking to immigrants about their cooking traditions. So that it sounds yeah. like you're saying that was kind of an easy segue because Lynn liked to have those kind of conversations with people already on, on the splendid table. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, easy in the sense that that's what I thought I could do. And when I took over the show, it was really, it was... I don't want to say it was tricky in the sense that, like, you know, we didn't belabor it too much and, and, and we didn't try to, like, okay, how can we do this exactly? We kind of just had to dive into it. Mm-hmm. And that was in part because I realized two things. One is that I will never be Lynn Rizzo Casper, and if I tried to be, it would just make everyone unhappy. <laughs> you know, like, I love her. She really is a hero of mine. And I'm sure so many of our listeners have loved her over decades, you know? So if I came in trying to be this person who I'm not, well, you're going to know, and I'm going to know, and no one's going to like it. And the other thing I realized was that, well, you know, a show really is the product of the team that makes it. And from the listener's perspective, it is often the product of the personality and the interests of the host. And that's when you can hear the host's passion or the team's passion, what they're really interested in. And that's when you can hear when they're being genuine and human. And I think um, the thing that I really love about doing this show, well, I love a lot of things about doing the show, but, you know, when you're doing your job and there's a moment when you realize, like, this is what I love. Mm -hmm. For me, it's when I'm having a conversation with, with someone and, you know, we do our research, we do our background. As a radio host, you know this. You come maybe with some questions you think you're going to ask. But the moment in the conversation where you just kind of feel that it turns mm-hmm. and you're not looking at your notes anymore, and you're not looking at the questions, and you're not worrying in your head about, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to do? How am I going to make it to time? You just know you're talking to this person and they're talking to you and you're sharing something with yourself. I'm sorry, you're sharing something about yourself and they're sharing something about them. And it feels like a real human connection. To me, that feels like that's the gem, right? That's the thing I love most about my job. And I hope that the more I feel that, the more the listener will feel it too. And the more they'll feel like, oh, you're right there with us. And you're right there listening to this story. And you're right there listening to this. Um, Yesterday, we had this really, I won't spoil, no, no spoilers here, had this really extraordinary interview with a daughter and her father they have a family business and um, he's growing older she's coming into the business and there was conversation about how they're sort of dealing with the generational change of their business and I looked over at my producer a few minutes into it and she is all the way in her tears like wow (laughs) it was just (laughs) this extraordinary (laughs) exquisite moment and I just feel like the more um, we can sort of make that moment happen, those moments of real human connection, the more the listeners will feel what we're doing is real and genuine. You know, and I think in this moment in time, like, it's kind of what we want, right? Like, we're bombarded with content, we're bombarded with stuff all the time. And I think 
a moment to have an opportunity here. People have real genuine moments um, in our case about food, but for, you know, other people in other fields, uh, you know, about whatever, you know, their area is, is something we really need to prize. Yeah. We need more of that. You, you once said, I saw an interview where you were quoted saying, as a writer, I feel like my greatest calling is to help tell the stories of invisible people, of people who otherwise wouldn't have their stories told. I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of immigrants end up falling into that boat and, and that having been your previous beat. Do you think journalism does a poor job of telling immigrant stories in, in general? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a mixed bag. I, I don't know that I, I you know would say that the media do a poor job of it. I do think a couple things do tend to happen, though. I think often um, immigrant stories are untold, right? Mm-hmm. Because often these are the people who are invisible in their society. They're the people who, because I'm in food, and I'll use food examples, they're the people who are growing the food in the fields and harvesting them and packaging them and shipping them across the country. They're the people who are washing the dishes. They're the people who are cooking the food on the line while the chef of the restaurant and I love chefs. I have great respect for chefs. You know, mm-hmm. I used to want to be one until I realized I wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the chef of the restaurant is often the person taking the credit. They walk out into the dining room. They shake hands. It's like the president of their own country. They're, you know, they're, they're kissing babies. They're doing the whole thing. And people love them. But often it's the people behind the kitchen door who are doing the work, who are making it all happen. And those people are very often immigrants and their stories aren't told very often. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think um, telling those stories, do you think that can make a difference in the tsunami of anti-immigrant sentiment we see in the U.S. today? Do stories have currency in a moment that's as angry as ours? I think if you do it with the purpose of, hey, I'm going to change the world by doing this, um, you'll probably be disappointed. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just being just being frank about it. No, I think it. that's you know, honest. If you say, like, if I only run more stories on my program, on my show, in my magazine, whatever, about this, then we're going to change the world. I think it's the more um, sort of realistic and in some ways motivating way to do it is to understand that um, in a moment like ours that is full of anger and full of disagreement and disagreement that's about like not even like not connecting and not talking to each other. It's about not seeing one another. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like there are people who unfortunately, you know, I remember in the um, 2008 election, you know, um, Sarah Palin, but like the started this rhetoric, I think. But this whole idea about real Americans, mm-hmm. who are the real Americans? And I think that's really damaging and really sad and really unfortunate because what it sets up is this dynamic of people who are now not saying, hey, we're Americans, but we have different opinions and we have different ideas of how the country should go. It established this idea that there are people who are quote unquote real and there are people who are not. And people who are real belong and people who are not don't belong. And I think that is um, a really, really, really hard dynamic to get out of, right? Once people have gotten into that kind of mode of conversation, it's really hard to get out of it. And again, sorry to bring it back to your question, the more we tell stories of invisible people, the more I've I've always thought what you're doing is not, you can't convince a a person, you're not changing a person's mind on, on the spot, I don't think. 
But what we can do is keep reinforcing the idea that, hey, you know what? We're all human and we all have human stories and invisible people are human in the same way that you are human. And if we can start from there and reset our expectations and reset our perspectives, we can get into a, hopefully a place where we can get back to a more you know, productive conversation about how we can move forward as a country and not just who belongs and who doesn't. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think you can like tell eight stories and you're changing the world, but I think we need to keep telling ourselves stories about one another that we don't know, people that we don't know, people that we don't see and see them. And the more we see them, the more we can come back to a place where we can start agreeing to at least disagree, but at least we can see one another again. We're talking with Francis Lamb, the host of The Splendid Table, who will be visiting St. Louis Public Radio on August 15th. So, Francis, you're coming to town. Let's talk about that town for a minute. Um, Earlier this year, the world went crazy when it discovered our penchant for slicing bagels like a loaf of bread. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this controversy caught your eye. It was certainly huge news in St. Louis that the people were shocked (laughs) and offended by our our tendency to do this. What's your take on this practice? (laughs) Can can you understand us as people (laughs) since we're doing Uh, (laughs) this? I see you. I see you. They're like bagel chips, but not toasted. I get it. Um, I am a New Yorker. Okay. I am a New Yorker. Let me say, on behalf of myself and not any other New Yorker, I think it's fine. (laughs) Whoa. I really don't care. We have been validated by the national media. (laughs) No, I know. Like, I mean, like, I really, people were freaking out about it. I was like, have I don't know, man. Have, like, have some sense of proportion. It seems <laughs> fine. Like, I don't know. You go to the corner deli here, and you see people who like. Okay, well, how I want my bagels? I want you to cut it in half. Mm-hmm. You know, slice the long way, and then I want you to scoop it out. So I want you to throw out half the bagel before you give me the bagel. And like, no one seems to mind that here. Why slicing it like vertically? Like weird to you? I just don't understand why people were so freaked about it. That said. Um, it seems like a lot to have to carry around. Like, if all I can carry all bagel versus carrying 16 slices of bagel, I, I, I don't know, convenience-wise, maybe it's just easier to carry the bagel, but do you do you? you know, this is also my larger food philosophy. It's kind of like, do you? You do you. <laughs> you can live and let live you, when it comes to things yeah. like this. <laughs> you need your bagel to be, you know, an eighth of an inch thick? Sure, do your thing. <laughs> So one of the things that makes St. Louis a kind of strange and wonderful place is we do also have some other unique foods here. Has anyone ever told you about toasted ravioli? I um, I have had toasted ravioli, oh. not in St. Louis. I've had them, and I th- they looked fried to me. Yeah, it's basically that just was my, a fried that was ravioli. My <laughs> I'm like, which, I mean, hey, I got no argument against that. That sounds awesome. I just don't, I want to know why they're called toasted. Not to put you on Is the it spot like here, but where else in the country are they serving toasted ravioli? Did this happen in New York? I find that I, hard I will, to believe. I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so there was definitely a like red sauce Italian place um, that I remember going to in the mall because that's where we eat in New Jersey, apparently, in the shopping mall. Um, when I was in high school and they had toasted ravioli on the menu, I was like, oh, that sounds cool. What's that? And I got it. I'm like, they're, they're, they're fried. I mean, they're delicious. You took a ravioli and you fried it. Like, I, you, that's great. Yeah. I, I never got to the bottom of why they were called toasted. And then I realized, or then I learned many years later, oh, in St. Louis, that's what they're called. Yeah. So I, I want to know 
how they got that name. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I feel like our local media has fallen down on getting an answer to that. We've just always <laughs> accepted it. And you're right. We should not accept this untruth here. <laughs> I guess in terms well, yeah, of, I, yeah. I mean, it's the name of it, right? I guess the tradition yeah, yeah, becomes yeah. the accuracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. With with a city like St. Louis, who which has this sort of deep passion for this regional cuisine that you can't find anywhere else. We've got toasted ravioli. Mm. We've got gooey butter cake. Do you think things like this? that are sort of these local foodstuffs, do you see that disappearing as we increasingly become more internationally minded eaters? I mean, now, thank God, you can finally get good Chinese food in St. Louis, which wasn't true for a long time. Is that going to wipe out things like the toasted ravioli, do you think? You know, honestly, I think it's more is more, right? Uh, Meaning, I don't think... This is kind of like that dichotomy we're talking about, right? And and I think... um, People often say to me, like, hey, you talk about food, stick to food, don't, you know, don't don't muck it up with politics. And I understand that perspective, I really do. But I kind of want to say, like, you kind of can't separate them because, in a sense, like, how we see the world is how we see the world, right? And things like food will fall into the larger bucket of how we see the world. And if we talk about, hey, is our tradition going to disappear if we start giving attention to different traditions that might be coming here or might be arising here, then we set up that thing again where it's like, it's always going to be zero sum. Mm -hmm. And it's always going to be, well, if this thing I love is, um, you know, is it going to go away if, if we make room for someone else? And I just don't think that's true. And I think that people will love the foods of their place and can love new foods coming to that place as well. And I think there's always room for both. Um, at least in our consciousness, in our minds. And, you know, there's, and then there's real world ramifications of, well, you know, this community is aging out of this place. And, you know, th- there's only so, so many storefronts and the real estate, you know, like the real world does have a, a, an icky way of intruding on idealism. <laughs> but I guess what I want to say is there are ways in which regionalisms are fading in that a lot of our media is national. A lot of our social media is sort of like not of a place, right? Like I can read your Twitter feed just as easy as I can read a Twitter feed from someone from Anchorage or someone from, you know, Idaho or someone from Orlando. And so in a sense, that is sort of making our regional boundaries disappearing more than, say, immigrants coming to a city that, you know, or new immigrant populations flourishing in a city. And I do think there is a certain sadness I might feel because their you know, regionalisms are powerful and important, but there's also a unifying factor that you know it can be beautiful and can be wonderful and that we can know. And I also think what this can also do is, you know, in the best case scenario, inspire people who are from a place, from a region, to learn more about the place, learn more about their region, to bolster their love of it and to bolster those stories and to learn how to make toasted ravioli and to learn how to make gooey butter cake and to like really support the frozen custard makers that you have always loved and keep make sure that they're in business and promote those things to the world while still welcoming the world to your back door. Literally, you know, in, in the form of new 
communities who are coming there and also in the form of people who want to come and see these things that you're proud of and want to come and taste these things you're proud of and want to share the things that they're proud of too. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, um, I don't want to be too Pollyannish about it, but I do think that is one way in which food can be powerful as a force for good. It's not always by any stretch of imagination, but it can be, and it can be a way for people to be proud of themselves and also a way for them to welcome others, right? And welcoming others means not just show them the things you have, but also partake in the things that they want to share with you. Let's go back to radio for a moment. Last year was your first time on your own hosting Turkey Confidential, which is the annual live call-in radio show. It's a Thanksgiving staple for kitchens across the country. (laughs) And talk about cooking traditions. I can't believe you're going to make me talk about this in August. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just – I'm so – I would never be able to take callers who wanted to know how to fix their turkey once it's already screwed up and, you know, all these very (laughs) difficult to cook Thanksgiving traditions. Did anyone, was anyone able to stump you with their cooking problems on this show? Oh, um, well, let's say, I I guess I would put it this way. I never, ever portray myself or think of myself as like, as like an all knowing font of knowledge. Like, honestly, (laughs) you can Google it. Like, Like if you really just needed something, you can Google it. What I can do is listen to your problem, help you figure out, okay, what else is going on in your house right now? What else is going on in your life? Like, you know, how much does your partner like really care about the turkey looking a certain way? You know, like we can figure all that out and then let's try to see if we can't either figure out a different thing for you to do or fix it. <laughs> Let's scrap the turkey. Or, or bamboozle them with something else. Like I think one of the one of the callers we had last year, and I had amazing um, guests with me the entire time, like guests who helped me take these calls. So like I wasn't flying totally blind. And, um, you know, someone had a half-baked pie, which, you know, no one is really happy about. But, you know, the middle of the pie was still a little soupy and still a little... Um, not quite there. And so we had this idea where <laughs> what if you scoop out the middle of the pie? <laughs> Just scoop it out, get rid of it, put it in a blender with ice cream, and now you have blueberry pie milkshakes, and then fill the center of your pie that you've scooped out with a ton of whipped cream. Like bingo. <laughs> So now you have a ton of whipped cream with your blueberry pie, the part of the pie that was cooked and delicious, and you have blueberry pie flavored milkshakes to go alongside. It was, um, you know, you can always bamboozle your guests one way or the other. I don't know if my mother would be bamboozled by that. I think she would have felt like, wow, Sarah screwed up the pie. No. <laughs> but it, but it sounds now like I'm you're... mad about this milkshake I get the drink? Yeah. Come on. I mean, it sounds like you're almost there as a therapist. You're there to, to help people feel okay about the fact that they that cooking is hard. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's the thing. It is. like, Or at least lots of kinds of cooking can be hard and lots of kinds of cooking can be simple. And I think one of the things we have to, um, or one thing that's really helpful for us to do for ourselves is remind ourselves what which kind of cooking we're doing at any particular moment. You know what I mean? Like, you can't walk into it and be like, this is going to be a breeze and, and all the time and just find yourself constantly overwhelmed. Because sometimes it's hard and it's okay. And we just need to, Make peace with it and then find out how to bamboozle your guests. (laughs) And on that note, Francis, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. The show airs on this station Sunday nights at 7. 
Francis Lamb will be hosting a live taping of the show next Thursday, August 15th, and will be joined by the local chefs of Clementine's Creamery, Vicia, and Herbie's. For ticket information, visit stlpublicradio.org events. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.